I remember very, very vividly um, speaking to my sister-in-law as a student, I was, about my newfound faith. And she said, ah, I know what an evangelical Christian is. They were the ones who, uh, when we were at university, always sat together in the corner, ostentatiously said grace before meals, and looked permanently glum. I think that that stereotype has been around in every age. Anthony Trollope's um, Barchester Towers has uh, the uh, the pious Miss Thorne, whom he says, whose virtues were too numerous to describe and not sufficiently interesting to deserve description. (laughs) Or our children, they grew up watching uh, the television series The Children of the New Forest, set in the English Civil War period. And there... The, 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 the Catholic Cavalier Royalists are honourable, hard-working, joyful, colourful. And then the, the Evangelical Roundheads come along and they're, they're wild-eyed, destructive fundamentalists who burn the nicest house in the area and forever quoting Bible verses and hunting down heretics. In every age, it seems, Evangelicals get a bad um, name. As to be said, no one could walk into a contemporary evangelical church, at least like ours, and really believe those stereotypes. Um, I find my friends um, constantly surprised um, that I even name myself as an evangelical um, because of the stereotypes that they live with. It does also have to be said that in every age there are people who do live up to that stereotype. And so it's very easy for those who want to uh, uh, campaign against evangelical Christianity to find those extremists. I I, um, uh, read commonly of uh, all sorts of extraordinary and embarrassing stories about evangelicals. But... When you look at the balance of it, the novelists and the journalists, they are parading the outlandish extremes. They're not talking about the reality. When you read 1 Peter 1, though, perhaps you could be excused from thinking that Peter is encouraging us to conform to some of those stereotypes. For instance, he immediately labelled them in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, didn't he, as, as scattered exiles. In other words, he identifies them as people who are uh, not at home in this world, who are different, who perhaps should go and huddle at the end of the uh, college dining table um, in their own little, uh, little group. When you see him um, describing... Uh, their walk as one of suffering in verse 7 for instance these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise and glory and honour for Jesus Christ when he is revealed when you read that you might expect Christians to be grin and bear it types who live in this veil of tears, 
waiting for the final um, uh, day when finally they will reach glory. When you read Peter in the, at the end of 1 Peter 1, describing, uh, towards the end, describing the battle that Christians face with their own sinful desires and that it is a constant, relentless battle against sin. It's not difficult to portray that or to imagine that in your mind as something rather, rather dark and, and, and forbidding. One journalist in The Guardian said, um, in commenting on evangelicals just a couple of weeks ago, there's not much joie de vivre about that lifestyle. And when you read right at the, uh, the end, sorry, at the beginning of chapter 2, about us being living stones, being built into a spiritual house. You can see the justification, can't you, for uh, picturing Christians as a people um, gathered together, built together into a tight little house of stone to defend themselves against the world. But that's not the picture that Peter wants us to have. That would be the same kind of gross distortion of what it means to be an evangelical Christian as the, uh, as, 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 uh, Trollope and others have portrayed. No. The picture that Peter sets before us is actually one, um, far more glorious and far more outward looking and far more joyful, far more engaged with this world than the stereotypes. In fact, Peter is going to show, going to show us in, uh, in 1 Peter 2 that actually our calling is the glorious calling of displaying the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ to this world. Far from being glum, introverted, sort of struggling through suffering, he says the basic tenet of uh, the Christian life, is to be joyfully outward-looking and serving in this world. We do it, he says, in uh, um, at least four different ways. The first is found in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. We do it by our speech. Um, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He's drawing there, in the first place, on a whole lot of titles that in the Old Testament were, were ascribed to the nation of Israel. Israel was the chosen people, not chosen because of their greatness, but chosen simply out of God's electing love. They were a royal priesthood, or as it appears in Exodus 19, they were a, a kingdom of priests, people gathered under the kingship of God to be priests to the world. That is, to have a special relationship with God and special access to God in order to mediate the truth and the glory of God to the wider world. They stood between God and the world as mediators. They were priests. They were a holy nation in the Old Testament. That is, they were specially set apart as God's possession in the, in the wider world. They were, as uh, Peter puts it, God's special possession. And Peter's saying what applied to Old Testament Israel as a, as a separate nation now applies to God's people, God's gathered people, the church. 
But now, once they were defined by belonging to a family, a clan system. But now they are defined in a different way. Verse verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. They are now defined, Christians, not by their family background, not by their genetics, not by their, their historical roots, but as people who have received the mercy of God. And it is the mercy of God that has brought God's people together. But here's the thing, here's the main thing uh, that we need to see from uh, these couple of verses. Their purpose. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's often used, that that mandate, that purpose to declare God's praises, that's often used as a justification for why we gather here and we sing behind closed doors or why great big Christian gatherings get together and sing by the thousands. And uh, uh, of course it's not forbidding that, but it's not centrally about that. The word declare... Is, is, is about an, an, an unlimited declaration of God's praises to all and sundry. It is not primarily about, about praising God in a focused way or even praising, praising God amongst one another in a limited way. It is about declaring abroad on the highways and byways out through the world the praises of God or... Um, or probably, actually, more better, the old translations of that were uh, of uh, of that phrase, the excellencies or the perfections of God. It's about how gloriously perfect God is. If, you, if you're a Christian here this morning, you belong to a God who is perfect in every way. He is perfect in his awesome, majestic power. He spoke the universe into being. And it was so good that the book of Job says the morning stars sang together for joy. That was how good it was. The the average physicist looks at the consistency of the laws of nature now and concludes that nature just eternally must eternally be as it is. But the Bible says, no, the consistency of the laws of nature stem not from some sort of intrinsic eternality about matter, but because God upholds those laws of physics, nanosecond upon nanosecond has been doing it for billions of years. That is how extraordinarily, perfectly faithful God is. Scientists look at the simplicity of the laws of the universe. It is amazing how over the last 150 years in in particular, we have seen that various disparate observations about the physical world have started to come together as one relatively simple, unified system to understand this world. Gravity and electromagnetism, all of of those things. What if that actually points to a glorious, ultimate simplicity about God? That God is, 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 is fundamentally quite simple. Eternally just, eternally faithful, absolutely omnipotent, absolutely omniscient. And out of 
uh, and more fundamentally than that, eternally loving. God the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, in eternal relationship, loving one another. God is love, says John. And out of those simple characteristics comes this extraordinary explosion, which is the universe of matter and space-time. God creates as well, within this universe, extraordinary beauty, from, 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 from vast mountains to delicate flowers, from, from, the, from the dangerous tigers to our Labrador who lies with, his, with her head on our lap, you know, and everything in between. God is extraordinarily beautiful. And there is a wonderful balance in his character as well. He's perfectly just, so that absolutely every wrong will meet its just punishment. But he is perfectly merciful, so that absolutely every human being who ever lived, who calls upon God's mercy, is absolutely guaranteed his mercy. How does he hold those two in tension? He holds that, the two in tension by the beautiful way in which he brings those two characteristics together in Jesus dying on the cross for us. So that now he maintains his perfect justice. Absolutely every sin is punished but also his perfect mercy, so that those who sought his mercy, he takes the punishment on himself in the form of the human Son of God, Jesus. And he can be both merciful and perfectly just. just. And the extraordinary way in which Scripture brings those two perfections together and unites them in the cross is one of God's excellencies, one of his perfections. And on we could go. He is infinitely wise and yet children can know him. He overflows from, with love and yet he's rightly to be feared. And so on and so forth. God is the God of, of infinite perfections and our calling is to declare those to the world. That is, our, that is our, our great calling. To, to go out there into, into this world and to find ways of speaking of the goodness and the perfection of God to people around. We gather here for a really important purpose. We need to learn together. We need to support one another. Church is massively important. We are being built together as, as living stones, said Peter, into a spiritual house. It's massively important. But our ministry is by and large out there. On Monday morning, you go out into the workplace to live and to speak for Christ. His reputation is on your shoulders. And it is your great calling, you who have seen something of God's perfections, to declare his perfections to the world. We do that by our words, but we do it as well by our lifestyle. See that verse 11? Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. There are negative things, he is saying, that we must abstain from. 
you know, the accusation that I mentioned earlier that, that such, a, such a lifestyle of abstaining from um, uh, sinful desires lacks joie de vivre is complete rubbish, you know. We know from earliest days we have to train children to abstain from sinful desires. Otherwise they'd beat one another to pulp, wouldn't they? And that joie de vivre comes from them learning that self-discipline and learning to relate together in a, in, in, in a restrained way. We know, because Hollywood is full of it, the misery that comes from uh, uh, um, unrestrained sexual desires as well. It is no surprising, surprise that actually people are re- who are really deeply joyful are people who have learned self-control in every area of their lives. Reflex desires and yielding to them as a matter of course by and large leads to misery. We know that from childhood. But uh, Peter is not only talking about negative aspects of lifestyle, which are important, the way that we live before the world, but positively as well, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits, uh, visits us. Notice that those good lives are to be lived among the pagans. Once again, you see Peter saying, 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 not just in your little privatised world, not just in your huddle at the end of the refectory table, not, not, not just being rabbit hole Christians as uh, John Stott used to describe them, sort of popping their hand out of one hole and perhaps wandering out to graze for a little while, but as soon as there's any danger, bang, they're back in their hole and hiding. Not like that. But out there, amongst people of all faiths and none. It's so important, you see, the way we live as we scatter amongst the world. There will be people who slander us, he says. They will accuse you of doing wrong. But true Christians, he says, they just have a lifestyle that in the end people cannot deny. And he says that in the end bears its fruit. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You cannot separate words from lifestyle. The two go intimately together. A lifestyle without words, people will never know where that good life comes from. But words without lifestyle, they will rightly call us hypocrites. So lead that good life before people. Don't get involved in office gossip. Don't get involved in those petty fiddling things that people do. Don't be the lazy one at work. Don't be the one who constantly bends to the... uh, Um, uh, to the dubious demands of the moment. Be someone who's absolutely solid and straight and known to be so. Some people hate that and they will. Partly at least because it exposes how different they are from that. And people will slander you. But don't be afraid of that. 
And don't think, if you have lived with integrity before Christ in that matter, don't think that you have failed when a few people slander you. Because others will see the integrity of your life. And they will be drawn to Christ. I was talking to someone just this, uh, this, this week who's not yet a Christian um, and I was talking to them about important gospel things and, uh, and they, said, they, they said to me simply, they said, well, whatever I've heard about evangelical Christianity, it, it doesn't fit with that person that I know. That person's not a wacko, not a weirdo. And so I came to talk to you. That's how it works. That's how it is working here. That's how Peter says it will work. Third aspect of this that Peter uh, uh, now moves on to is, is, is our engagement with society as a whole. Look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Now, it's not immediately obvious, but there is a real tension in those verses for Peter here. Now, P- P- Peter is writing to people who feel themselves to be increasingly at odds with these Roman authorities that he's talking about. You know, it's not going to be long, actually, in history, and they could see it by this time. It's not going to be long before Christians are going to be uh, being executed just for being Christians. This was probably written shortly before Emperor Nero, um, in order to divert attention away from his own um, uh, incompetencies um, through blame for the great fire of Rome onto Christians and had them tortured and even used as human torches in his gardens. It was only a few decades after this was written that up there in, in Bithynia, where, where one of the places that Peter is writing to, the, the, uh, a man called Pliny the Younger was writing to the emperor um, to ask advice on how to treat Christians. And he incidentally mentions, you know, I caught a few of them, I tortured them, they don't seem to change their views. What should I do? Should I just kill them? Or, uh, or, or should I tolerate it? And the emperor's advice comes back, well, probably don't hunt everyone down and kill him just for being a Christian, but certainly if they ever cause any trouble, you can kill them like that, no problem. That, that's what was going on. But Peter says, no, submit to those authorities. Actually, Peter knows that, that sometimes that submission has to come to an end. Back in Acts chapter 4, it was him facing the uh, authorities of his day, right at the beginning of, of uh, the church, who said, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you, human authorities, or to God? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking what we have seen and heard. And he went on speaking despite the fact that they told him to be quiet. Submission is not absolute, but submission is the main thing that Christians are called to do, even to unjust, malicious authorities. 
That's an extraordinary thing for him to, uh, uh, to say. It means great cost for believers. And yet it seems to me we have forgotten that. One of the, the, the tragedies, and you have heard me speak about it before, but let me say it again, one of the tragedies of uh, what is going on in the public realm in our country at the moment is it seems to me, at least, that Christians again and again are just picking fights over things that are not absolutely essential. Yes, we have to stand up and say, we will keep preaching the gospel. We cannot stop preaching the gospel. Christians, both now and um, in the past, have to be prepared even to die for that. But frankly, I think wearing a cross on your uniform, maybe that's something you could just submit. Os Guinness, the, uh, the Christian author, um, has written that actually um, we have a choice as to how we relate to, relate to our society. The choice between being, as he puts it, idiots, tribes people, or citizens. And um, uh, by idiot, he means something slightly different from what you may immediately um, uh, think, but it possibly encompasses what you immediately think. He's wanting to use an old definition of idiot, which is, uh, uh, which is very useful. An idiot, uh, says the dictionary definition, in Athenian democracy was someone who was characterised by self-centredness and concerned uh, almost exclusively with private as opposed to public affairs. So, Os Guinness's idiot is just turned in on himself. It comes from the Greek idiotes, which means of himself, and lives entirely privately. They they just let the rest of the world go go by and, uh, and live this sort of sequestered existence. And that won't do, says Guinness and Peter. Because we must live these good lives among the pagans, out there in the world. Guinness's second choice is tribes people, which he sees as being a very popular one today. It sees the, seems the main task of Christians to protect, to preserve the rights and privileges of our tribe. I, I see that, or at least I perceive that, all the time in, uh, in some of the legal, legal battles that are, that are going on. It's, they're right, uh, to a certain extent. But there seems to be the, the, an added overtone that our only interest is in preserving the rights and privileges of us, which seems to be fundamentally against the character of Christ. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he didn't hang, hang on to his own status and privilege even as the Son of God. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't come to rally the tribe to claim their rights. He came to surrender his rights for a world that needed so much God's love and forgiveness. 
So says Gillis, there is a third category, which is the central biblical category. We are called in our relationship with this world to be citizens, to work for the common good of society, which is not the same as our narrow good. In fact, it might involve surrendering some of the less central elements of, uh, of our good and our desires for the greater good of society. When we start to think like that, you see, it, it, it raises questions over what issues we should campaign on and what we shouldn't. On, on, on how we seek solutions for the difficult problems in society. I'll give you an example. Um, a few years ago, the Catholic adopt, adoption agencies were, were more or less hounded out of the, uh, um, the whole adoption process because the government decided actually they would follow the tribe's people response and they believed that all adoption agencies should accept same-sex couples for, for adopting children and they were going to impose that uniformly on every adoption agency up and down uh, the country. Um, uh, interestingly um, an atheist philosopher Ronald Dworkin articulated um, uh, an alternative view he said that he profoundly disagreed with the Catholic adoption agencies and their, their squeamishness over accepting same-sex couples um, uh, as adoptive parents but that there was a way in society to achieve the overall good that they saw whilst preserving the integrity of that group, the Catholic adoption agencies. It wouldn't be difficult to find policies which ensured that same-sex couples could always find an adopting agency whilst at the same time preserving the, 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 the rights of a minority. Now that is a, is a style of thinking that originated amongst the Christians. Indeed, it especially originated amongst the non-conformist Christians who early on recognised the value of having a genuinely fair, plural society which allowed religious liberty to minorities. And it's one of my great sadnesses that we have lost that. We have forgotten that. And so we go up as one tribe against another group who fight as their tribe. And of course, every fight to the death that Christians get involved in involves the Christians losing. Because they are a minority. We are such fools. Because Peter calls us to work for the common good, to submit even to unjust authorities, because frankly, there's an awful lot of good they still do. They still punish an awful lot of wrong, he says. They still commend an awful lot of right. Indeed, he says, they are ordained by God. And it is God's will that actually you silence the opposition, he says, not by going to war against them, but by simply living good lives as citizens in this empire and letting the ignorant and foolish talk of people be shown to what it is.
I want to call you then to think what it means to be citizens in this world. To work for the common good. To respect the consciences of other people. Even to surrender certain rights and privileges that we could, if we wanted to, fight for. And yet, against the overall aim of having a broad, just society that welcomes and accepts all people, they seem rather trivial. Osgiddis himself has written mainly into the American situation and says very, very clearly that they lost sight of that, the Christians. And then in the next generation, the rising generation, the evangelical Christians have lost any sense of reputation as being genuinely good people because they just fought as tribes people. By our words, by our lifestyle, by our engagement with society, we display the glory of God. We show the goodness of God. We draw people inexorably, though they slander us, towards inevitably respecting God. And by our freedom as well. Verse 16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Well, let's read on to verse 17. No, the rest of verse 16, sorry. Use the freedom as a cover-up for you. Live as God's slaves. That's the irony that he captures there. Live as free people, but live as God's slave. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, wrote in his book, uh, in his essay a Christian fr- on Christian freedom, a Christian is the most free lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to everyone. There is a paradox there. Peter puts it slightly differently. We are totally free, but we are slaves of everyone. Indeed, He's he's saying to be radically committed to total obedience to God, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength is in one sense a complete and total surrender of our liberty but in another sense is the discovery of true liberty. Because this good and loving God as we surrender to him he draws us into a place of true freedom. And so he says, as you face this hostile world, you can, you alone can live as free people. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Most of our contemporary world's descriptions of freedom are that. Where people claim that they want to be free to express themselves in any way they like. But actually, that, that claim for freedom is a desire for autonomy for me at the expense of others. 
A true Christian freedom is slavery to God, is living for God, and there everyone becomes free. There's a real irony in the way that others who claim freedom, in fact, again and again, acknowledge how trapped they are. I remember Woody Allen, some years ago, when he left um, Mia Farrow, his long-term partner, for... For, for her stepdaughter, who was his sort of stepdaughter by, um, at least informally, um, uh, I think he was 60 and she was 21, and people were questioning that, and he said, the heart wants what it wants. He, in other words, was confessing himself to have no freedom. No, nothing could stop him, he said from just following his heart whether that be good sense or um, faithfulness to me a pharaoh nothing could stop him Christians live in a different world a world where they've discovered true freedom and can live that out a world where they are not enslaved to those former passions and a world where actually, as we live out that freedom, people will find it attractive. So do you think it's boring? Introverted? A veil of tears to follow Christ? I don't think Peter does. I think he's saying you have the most glorious task in the universe. The task of declaring and living out and modelling and enjoying living under the perfections of a perfect God.